Amen. Good morning. I don't know if y'all heard that amen over there. That's my son. <laughs> I didn't hear any other of you say amen. So, All right. Um, well, good morning. If this is your first time here, welcome to Valleytown, the gathering of Valleytown Church. Um, super glad that you're here this morning. Excited to dive into the Word of God together. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. And if you don't, you can slip up a hand and there will be a Bible in your hand in no time. So um, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get one to you. Colossians chapter 2. Um, if you look at how far I'm turned in, we're about uh, maybe four-fifths of the way through the Word. Um, I told the first gathering that the way that I always sort of remember where Colossians is in the lineup is Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, General Electric Power Company. So you're welcome for that. And, um, and you can turn with me to Colossians using that. So before we dive into the Word, I want to kind of give you a little bit of context about Colossians. Colossians is a letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul to this church in Colossae, and he actually had never been there before. But the reason why it's called Colossians is because this is a church that's at Colossae. So it'd be like if somebody wrote a letter to you, like if I wrote a letter to you, and we're calling it like Wilmingtonians. Okay, so like this is a letter that was written to this church that's in this town or this city. And what you need to know about Colossae is that it was the adopted home of Oriental mysticism. Think an Oriental mysticism. What in the world is that? I just want you to think Southern Vermont for a second. Um, everywhere I go and I start talking to people about Jesus or about starting a church, I hear from them. I'm not religious, but I am spiritual, right? And that's everybody here because there's this spirituality that is vague and it's internal and it's, it comes from the East, but it's about finding peace with yourself, finding peace with nature, um, discovering the God inside of you, right? There's like this secret knowledge that you achieve as you're more one with whatever is out there. And there's just sort of this kind of vague spirituality. And that pervaded Colossae at this time. And there's also uh, really prominent in Colossae the practice of Judaism, which the Judaizers constantly wanted believers in Jesus to add to what Jesus had done for them more works, more performance. So Yes, that's great that you believed in Jesus, but have you been circumcised? Yes, that's great that you believed in Jesus, but are you worshiping Jesus on the right day? And so there was all this performance that was being tacked on to the gospel. And so you had this sort of weird melting pot, not so unlike our culture here, that is this, either it's this weird, like sort of vague spirituality that it's kind of hard to get your mind around. Um, I think about my my neighbor, who I love and we're really good friends with, she came over and saw some decor in our kitchen that's not in our kitchen anymore because it's kind of too conspicuous of a place for Kayla's craft, but it looked like peace flags. You know what I'm talking about when I say peace flags? Like, just drive 30 minutes down into Brattleboro and you'll see them on every deck possible, right? Peace flags. So she asked Kayla, she says, oh, are those peace flags? And Kayla's like, mm, what are peace flags? What are they for? And she's like, for peace. Obviously, like, I mean, that's what peace flags are for. You hang them up and you get peace, right? And there's just sort of this kind of spiritual mysticism kind of idea going on. And that's, 
exactly what you had in Colossae, which is exactly why Paul is writing to them in verse 8 of chapter 2, where we'll begin. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, or the original text is through the philosophy, meaning this, he's not knocking philosophy in general. He's saying through this specific philosophy, this false doctrine that pervades your culture, make sure that no one takes you captive through it. Make sure that you're not deceived by this philosophy. According to the tradition of people and according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So this isn't some sort of like innocent belief like, oh, it, it can't mean that much harm or why is it such a big deal that some people believe this and I believe this and it's fine. He's saying there is a war going on for souls and there's a war going on for the faith of believers. And Paul is writing and saying, make sure that nobody handcuffs you and leads you away by mixing the gospel with the religion of your culture. It's so important here, right? Praying to Jesus is not like this kind of new age meditation stuff. Don't mix and match the gospel with the religion of the culture. He's saying, I, I don't want you to get led astray. And so the religion of the day, not unlike here, is people creating man-made religions, man-made ways of answering some of life's biggest questions, Right? What are we here for? What is our purpose for? How do we achieve peace with God? And so there's all these man-made creations, man-made religions of things to do and ways to achieve that. But the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1.21 that the world through its wisdom does not know God. What he's saying is that it is impossible for any of us to find the answer to life's questions or to know God himself apart from God making himself known to us. We're not smart enough. How can you and I bring God down to figure out what he's like, who he is, how we can get to him? And so he's saying, look, the world through its wisdom does not come to know God. And so don't be led astray by things that don't come from God rather than what he's clearly revealed to us in Jesus Christ. If you skip up a few verses in verse 6, Paul writes to them, he says, Therefore, as you have received Jesus the Lord... So walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Paul's saying something profound here. He's saying that you have received Jesus, and when you received Jesus like a tree, your roots were put into the ground. Your roots were were firmly planted into Christ. So now, having been firmly rooted... Now grow, right? This is, this is this picture, the way he uses nature is kind of a, a picture for us. You've been rooted in Christ, now grow in Christ. You've been rooted in Christ, now walk in him. And so my prayer today in, in having gone through our passage that we're going to walk through this morning, which is verses 9 through 15, my prayer has been that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, that you would have this kind of full assurance of faith where the firmness of your rootedness would be made more clear to you after having seen what Jesus has done for you. That you would actually, that your faith would not become more firm because it can't get firmer than it's been made in Jesus. But that you would actually come to know and understand just exactly what he has done for you in Christ 
and that your faith would be made stronger, that you would have more assurance of understanding of what has happened to you. And if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, then I want you to know that everything that we talk about this morning that Jesus has done for believers, he stands ready and willing to do for you. And he wants to. But what we're mainly going to focus on today is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, who is Jesus and what has he accomplished for you at the cross? So before we do, let me pray for us and ask God for revelation. Father God, we, though we can't, we can't understand your word, we can't know you apart from you making yourself known. And so, God, we come to you with humble hearts, with hungry hearts, God, hearts that, um, Lord, maybe ha- are here just because we're going through the motions, but we don't want to be. We, we want to receive what you have for us this morning. We want to hear from the voice of Almighty God. And so I pray, Father, that our testimony would be that we came to your word with fear and with trembling and that we understood your word to be what it really is, not the word of people, but the word of God. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we get into what Jesus has accomplished for us at the cross, it's important to establish who Jesus is. Because apart from knowing who Jesus is, what he's done doesn't have any kind of bearing on our lives. So in Colossians 2, verse 9, Paul starts out in our passage saying, For in Jesus all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So the first thing that you need to see about Jesus this morning is that Jesus is God. Jesus is not partially God. He's not a secondary version of God not like he's God's son, so he's not really God, and he's not one among many gods. Jesus is God, and the Bible says that all the fullness of God the Father dwells in God the Son. That if you want to see what God the Father is like, you can look at Jesus. Jesus said it this way in, in John chapter 14, he who has seen me has seen the Father. In Hebrews chapter 1, The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. He is very God of very God. He is every bit of God as God the Father. The Bible teaches that God is one God, one nature, but he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is not just some kind of secondary version of God, and he didn't just come on the scene at the manger, right? I talk to people... Um, who have been believers for a while, and they're like, whoa, Jesus didn't just, like, get his existence at what we celebrate in Christmas? And the Bible says, no. In John chapter 1, the Bible says that Jesus was in the beginning with God, and everything that has been created has been created by Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, which we looked at last week, the Bible says that Jesus created all things, and everything was created through him and for him. And just like Hebrews, Colossians says that Jesus is holding everything together right now by the word of his power. Job said it like this, God, if you were to draw your breath back to yourself, all mankind would return to dust. Jesus is God. Jesus is holding everything together by the word of his power. Colossians 1, he says that it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of of him, his fullness, to dwell in Jesus. 
And in verse 10 of our chapter that we're looking at today, it says that Jesus is the head over all rule and all authority, meaning any earthly authority, any heavenly authority. If it's a heavenly being, if it's a demonic being, there is no ruler or authority that can rival the power of Jesus. Jesus is the unrivaled, supreme ruler of the entire universe, and he is God, and everything subjects to him. But what I don't want to miss this morning is that in verse 9, he says, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, in bodily form. And I just kind of want to step back with you this morning and just come to this like we just hadn't heard of this before, that you never heard of Jesus becoming a man. And I just want you to kind of let the weight of this, the, the magnitude of this kind of sink in this morning. The God of the universe who created everything, who holds all things together, actually became a man. The God of the universe, fully God, actually became a person. Philippians chapter 2 says it like this, that Jesus, although he existed in equality with God, did not exist, he did not Consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took the form of a bondservant and was made in the likeness of a man. Hebrews says that Jesus had to do this. He had to be made like us in every way, but without sin, so that he could be a sacrifice for us. Because the wages of sin against the Almighty God is death. And so every single person owes God their blood for their sin. And apart from a man making the sacrifice in the place of other men, an innocent man, there would be no sacrifice. And you and I are left to suffer the punishment of our sins ourselves. And apart from Jesus being God, his sacrifice wouldn't have been sufficient for us. How could the blood of a person cover the sins of an entire world but the blood of God? So you see that Jesus is uniquely qualified as fully God and fully man to be a sacrifice for us. To take our place before God, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, says it like this. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Meaning, Jesus is fully God, and so he can be on the side of the Father, and he became fully human so he could be on the side of humans, and he could bridge the gap and stand in between them and saying to God, I'm representing humans to you. And saying to people, I'm standing in the gap for you to get to God. And he is the only one who is uniquely qualified to stand in that place for us. And the Bible says that he did that so that everything that Jesus did in his life, everything that he accomplished in his life, everything that he accomplished in his death and in his resurrection could be good for you. He actually came as our substitute so that everything that he did, the Bible says that by faith, When we're joined to him, everything that he did was good for us. We could actually become one with Jesus to where his death was our death and his resurrection is our resurrection. All of that was made possible by the God of the universe becoming a man in our place. And so as we read on in this passage, I want you to think about this. Every time the Bible references this in Christ or in him, it's referring to our oneness with Jesus that happens by faith. The Bible says that by faith, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, that you've been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, that you've been made one with him. 
so that literally his death is your death and his resurrection is your resurrection. And so we're going to dive into what Jesus accomplished at the cross, but you need to know that what he accomplished at the cross is fully good for you because he became a man for you. So moving down into verse 10, the Bible says that in Jesus, by virtue of you being joined to Jesus by faith, you have been made complete. The actual language is you have been made full. You have been made full by him who is the fullness of God. So think about this. If you have been filled with him who is the fullness of God, then what are you lacking? What could you lack this morning? If you have been made complete, made full by him who is the fullness of God. This is reassuring for believers this morning because you need to understand that God is not just waiting to love some future version of you. He's not waiting to perfect you at some, perfect, at some day. He's going to perfect us bodily, but the work of him making you righteous is absolutely complete. There's not going to be some more righteous version of you that he'll love more at some future date. The Bible says that you have been given Christ and made completely righteous in Christ, and that work of salvation is complete. You and I have been made complete in Jesus. There's nothing lacking to what he's done for us. We don't need anything else now. There's no other way for salvation. We have been made complete in Jesus. The next thing that Paul says in verse 11 through 12 is that in Jesus, we were circumcised with the circumcision made without human hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So if you're taking notes, the first thing that Jesus did is we were made complete in Jesus. But the the second thing that we see here is that he removed the old you and made you a new you. Now, I know that as I read the passage, you're probably sitting there thinking like, okay, the wheels just now came off. Because we were talking about in Jesus dwells the fullness of God and he became a man and we've been made complete in Jesus. And all of a sudden we're talking about circumcision and baptism. And I'm like, what in the world has happened? What What happened? Paul is using circumcision and baptism as pictures of what happened to you when you first believed on Christ. So the first picture, circumcision. This seems like a really strange word picture here, but circumcision was always a symbol of being part of the people of God, right? So in the Old Testament, when people joined the Israelites and placed their faith in their God, they had to be circumcised as sort of a sign or a mark that they belonged to the people of God. But God never intended for circumcision to just be outward. He always intended it for it to be the circumcision of the heart. And that's what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. So this is like way Old Testament. And he says, Moses is talking, he says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. And here's what that means. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. So here's what the Bible teaches. You and I are born with dead hearts. We're born spiritually dead, hearts of stone, doing whatever we want, loving ourselves, seeking pleasure for ourselves, and really running our lives and being our own gods. And what the Bible says is that God, notice he says, with a circumcision not made with human hands. Number one, it's not physical circumcision. Number two, 
It's not something that humans do. It is something that God did to you. When you were dead in your trespasses and sin, the Bible says that God took your dead heart and removed it from you and made you spiritually alive. The Bible calls this regeneration. It's, it's God making you new, and it is completely a work of God. It's why verse 13 says, when you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, meaning you were not a part of the people of God and you were dead and unable to do anything about it. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. Ephesians chapter 2 says it this way. So if you were to flip over just a few pages, it says, you were dead in the the trespasses and sins of your flesh in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of the world. Meaning, your state before Christ wasn't pretty good. It wasn't okay. It's not like you just started turning your life around and found a better faith than you had before. The Bible says that you and I were dead. Have you ever seen a dead body before? It's grim, but they're, they're not doing anything. They're unable to do anything for themselves. And the Bible gives us that as a word picture of saying, you were dead. You weren't seeking after God. You didn't want God. If you were, as God began drawing your heart and you were inclined to the things of God, God was doing that in your heart. And he was making you alive. He removed a heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. And the reason why it's so comforting that you and I had zero part in our salvation is because if you have a part in saving yourself, your faith is pretty shaky. I mean, it's here today and it's gone tomorrow as soon as you don't feel that good about how you participated in your salvation. And the Bible's saying that God, this is verse 4 of, of Ephesians chapter 2, verse, um, after he says, you were indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast before God. So you need to see this this morning. The work of salvation is entirely the grace of God. God gave you this as a gift. This was God's gift to you. He says that you were by nature children of wrath. And if you are without Christ today, that is the description of, of who you are, that you've rebelled against God and you stand as an object of God's righteous anger against sin. But what the Bible says is that in Christ, you and I can be forgiven and free. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it like this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, and behold, new things have come. Meaning the old you is gone. The old you is dead. You don't have to live with the guilt of the old you anymore, you've been made a new creation in Jesus. And I can just hear some of you today thinking, 
how can you say that when you don't even know who the old me is? You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've been through. And so I just want you to just think. If that's you this morning, I just want you to think about everything that you have done that you feel like would be on a list. If you were to make a list of everything that you've done against God, every reason why God would punish you for your sin, every reason why you still feel guilt, I want you to just kind of make a mental list right now. You're thinking, we don't have that much time. I'm thinking, well, you're right, but I just want you to kind of take a stab at it right now, okay? All these things that that you feel like stand between you and God are the, the guilt that you still live with. And then I want to read verse 14 with you. Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. Having forgiven us all of our transgressions. So I want you to hear that this morning. He has forgiven you of everything that you've ever done and everything that you will do. You know what that word all means in the original language? All. (laughs) Like, it means that there's not a sin that he left over, like some remnant sin that you've got to clean up yourself. The word all is the same as Paul used to say that all the fullness of God dwelled in Jesus in bodily form, as if to say you are as fully forgiven in Jesus as Jesus is fully God. You are as fully forgiven in Christ Jesus as Jesus is fully God. And you think, how could that possibly be true? The Bible says in verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. So that list that you made in your head or at least started to make, that's a real list that actually exists. It actually existed before where God had categorized every single thing that you had ever done because like a just judge, he has to judge sin. So he keeps a record. The word is like a handwritten record. He is personally acquainted with everything that we've done, which is terrifying apart from Christ because you know that one day you will stand before the judge of the universe and you will have to give an account and you stand without Christ defenseless, no hope, guilty. And the Bible says that Jesus took their certificate of debt that consisted of everything that you had ever done that was hostile to you, that stood over you to condemn you, and said he took it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. He took it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. This word took it out of the way means he wiped it out. He erased it. Erased it, meaning Here's a list of everything that you've ever done, all the guilt that you carry, and it says that Jesus has knocked it out. The word actually carries with it this connotation of there was evidence that was kind of left traces of the guilt of this action, and the action and the evidence have been obliterated. And you think, how can God the Father do that as a just judge? How can he just obliterate the evidence? I mean, can you imagine a judge standing before, presiding over a trial And there's clear evidence as to the guilt of somebody, and the judge destroys the evidence. That's obstruction of justice, right? He's going to prison for that. So what God didn't do is just lift up the rug and sweep our sins over the rug and just say, you know what, just forget about him. I'm not as righteous as I told you I was, and you just don't even have to worry about it. 
when the Bible says that God wiped out the certificate of debt or that he obliterated the certificate of debt that consisted of decrees against us, he obliterated it in Jesus. The Bible says that God took every single thing that you've ever done and put it on Jesus and then crushed him so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be free. And there stands presiding over you this principle of there's no double jeopardy. The, the sin has been punished in Jesus. It cannot be punished in you. If Jesus has taken the punishment for you, then God would be unjust in punishing that sin again in you. So the, the guilt that you carry, the burden that you carry for the things that you've done, Jesus has erased it and wiped it out by his blood. And an illustration of this, in his dying moments on the cross, Jesus said in one of his last breaths, he said, it is finished. It's three words in English, but in Greek it's one. He said, to tell us die. And it means paid in full. Not partial payment. Not, not I've made a down payment. He said, I have paid it in full. To tell us die. Paid in full. You don't owe me anything. You don't owe God the Father anything. There's no punishment for you. There's no condemnation for you anymore because I took the condemnation for you. This term paid in full was used in a couple ways in the culture in which Jesus screamed that in from the cross. And one was with debts. When debts were paid off, they would actually have stamped on them to telestai, meaning This debt has been paid. It is paid in full. You don't owe on it anymore. The other way that it was used is that prisoners oftentimes would have this list of papers that had documented everything that they had done and why they were serving time. But when they served the time that they owed for the wrongdoings that they had done, they would have stamped on it to telestai. So that as they walked about free, if anybody questioned why they were out of prison for the things that they had done, they could show their papers and say, my time has been done. And so Jesus at the cross said, paid in full, the list of things that you should serve time for has the telestai written on it. That's why the Bible says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Meaning the law could never make you righteous. You can never get to God or have peace with God by doing enough good things. But it says what the law could not do, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of our sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in me and you. Because Jesus became a man, all that he did as a man, the the righteous life that he lived, this perfect fulfilling of the law, means that he could give it to you. He could take your punishment. He could take my punishment. He could go to the cross. He could pay it in full because he was God and man. And he says that that now becomes available to those who are in Christ Jesus so that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Psalm 103.12 says it this way, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed his, your transgressions from you. 
as far as the east is from the west, never to meet. And I think sometimes as believers, we kind of get this idea that God has sort of reluctantly forgiven us of our sins, and he really likes Jesus a lot, but he doesn't really, he's not really altogether that happy with us. And that while, we've, while we think that we've been like forgiven of our sins in the ultimate sense, and that someday we'll end up with him in heaven, right now he's still looking very unhappily at us at the things that we've done, and we're carrying our guilt, and we're constantly looking to ourselves Wondering if we're doing good enough, trying hard enough, praying good enough, reading our Bible enough, telling people about Jesus enough, giving enough. And what Jesus would just declare over his people this morning is, I've paid it in full. You don't owe anything anymore. You want peace with God? You want full acceptance with the Father? Come right in. Because I purchased it for you with my blood. Full access to the Father. Full peace with God. Don't look to yourself for your sufficiency anymore. Can you imagine the joy and the life that you would live, your everyday life, if you just lived in the full assurance of faith that you have been fully forgiven in Jesus? That's why Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, burdened by this workspace, performance-based thing, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Have you given your burden to Jesus? Are you still trying to carry on your back your past and the things that Jesus has paid for? And he says, you don't have to carry that anymore. I've paid it in full. Doing this would just completely shift our thinking from this performance-based mentality where instead of doing the things that God has told us to do so that God will be happy with us or so that we'll have peace with God, we can do so from joy because we know I want to read my Bible and I want to pray because I've got this God who gave everything for me so that I could be fully forgiven and free. And I'm filled with the joy of the Lord and the joy of Christ because I, I really am forgiven. I really don't have to pay for my sins. I really am accepted with the Father. You're, you're free to escape from guilt. You don't have to carry around the burdens that you've been carrying. You're free to forgive other people. You're free to take off the mask that we put on in Christian circles where I have to be perfect and you have to be perfect because we all love Jesus and people who love Jesus are perfect, supposedly. When in reality, we're all really messed up and really forgiven. And if that's my story and that's your story, then why don't you just come share your hurts and the ways that you're messing up right now and let me remind you that you're fully forgiven in Jesus. And let's press on with joy to follow him, following him and doing the things that we know to do, not because we have to, to check off a box, but because we want to, because Jesus has become our delight. And then lastly, the, the thing that his full forgiveness enables us to do is it silences the voice of the enemy. The enemy is constantly trying to turn this on its head and to convince you that you're not fully forgiven, that God's not pleased with you in Jesus. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 33, the Bible says, Who will bring a charge against God's people? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one to condemn? What he's saying is, if God has declared you righteous in Jesus, then who are you and who is the devil to tell you otherwise? If God has handed you papers that said paid in full, then when the enemy comes barking at you, telling you that you've done a bunch of stuff that God has not forgiven you of, you show him your papers. 
You said, I've been pay- it's been paid in full. I've been released. Jesus has done my time for me. And I'm forgiven and free. It's what Paul means in verse 15 when he says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through the cross, through Jesus. It means that God literally did what the Romans used to do to their prisoners of war, where they would parade them through the streets just to shame them, just to make known their power and their glory and the fullness of their victory over the enemy. And the Bible says that Jesus did that to the devil. Jesus has taken captive the things that have held you captive. And he has enslaved the things that have held you in slavery so that his victory could be your victory. And the way that you see that victory in your everyday life is to believe him for it. Not by trying harder, not by doing more, but by resting more. By believing him when he says, paid in full. So, the takeaway for believers this morning, I think, comes from Isaiah 44, verse 22. God says, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. God says, return to me, for I have redeemed you, meaning you've been wandering, you've been You've been looking for satisfaction in other things, and you've felt guilt for the things that you've done, and you've not trusted me for forgiveness, and so it's caused you to run from me, to be doing your own thing. You don't feel like you can draw near to me. And he says, I have redeemed you. Literally, I have bought you with the blood of Jesus. You are mine. Come back to me. I love you. Live in the joy of the fullness of his salvation. And if you've not placed your faith in Jesus this morning, you need to know that this list of decrees that consists of all the things that you have done wrong against God is a real list and that you must flee to Christ for mercy because only in Jesus is there full forgiveness. Only in Jesus can it be said, paid in full. And as you go about your life, believers, Make this known to people. Don't back down from the truths of the gospel that there is a day when God is coming to judge the world in righteousness and that he is calling everybody in his mercy to flee to Christ for full forgiveness and full freedom. And it is available to all who will call upon his name. Acts 3, I end with this. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So we're going to respond in worship now. And I think sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do before God in response to God is just to stand in awe of just silence before him, just in worship for what he's done, of, of really just letting truth be sung over you that you really have been forgiven. He really has forgiven you of everything that you've ever done in Jesus and let it move you to more all-filled worship, more love and devotion to Jesus for what he's done during the context of your days. And when the enemy comes knocking, show him your papers. You're not guilty anymore. You're forgiven. You're free. So Josh, I'm going to invite you to come up and don't. Um, 
some of the way that we can respond right now is sitting in that reverent silence, letting the truth be sung over you, or singing your heart out with joy. Because you know, there's, is there not joy in this? Is there not joy in full forgiveness and freedom? I mean, we should be the loudest, most worshipful people in the entire universe because we have had our slate cleaned. And the other way is, look, we are not our own. We've been bought with the price. And so I want to give of everything that I am to make this message known of full forgiveness and full freedom. So we're going to have an opportunity to give into the kingdom of God so that this message of salvation by grace through faith can be spread all over southern Vermont and around the ends of the earth. So I'm going to pray and just invite you um, to worship and to really meditate on the truths of the fullness of our forgiveness in Jesus. Father, Lord, we are so thankful for Jesus this morning. We thank you, Father, that because the sinless Savior died, our sinful souls are counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Jesus and pardon me. I pray for every heart in this room, God, every brother and sister in Christ, Lord, who's wrestling right now with the fact that They've been forgiven and freed. God, I pray that you would just speak this truth over their heart. That Jesus said, I've paid it in full in your mind. Father, I pray that if there's anybody in this room that has not embraced the forgiveness that is available to them in Jesus, Lord, I pray that they would repent and turn from running their own life and that they would flee to Christ for mercy in whom there is full forgiveness and full peace with you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.